No, I'm not preaching last week's sermon again, but we are in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 again. We're going to talk about this one more time. Um, This is the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, bless this word to our lives. Help us to apply it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You can ask Spencer about this later, but I can be, and Terry and I can be annoyingly repetitive. Well, not Terry's never annoying, but I can be annoyingly repetitive. Is anybody like that with their kids? When there's something you want them to do, that you can repeat things over and over and over and over again. Um, All the kids in the sanctuary are laughing. None of the parents are because the kids have heard it. Yesterday, we were supposed to be going to a family thing in, in Kentucky for my another nephew that had a new baby, and so we needed to leave the house about noon. And, and so Terry had told Dylan probably a dozen times, hey, we need to leave, so you need to leave what you're doing by this time, so as soon as you can to get back. And, and, and I had told him before, and, and then yesterday morning I sent him a text. I said, now remember, <laughs> and he said, yes, Dad, you've already told me that. But, but sometimes it's important that we're annoyingly repetitive <laughs> so that we can get a point across. And, and I'm being at, at the risk of being annoyingly repetitive. I think it's important that we look at the scripture and the commands of the scripture again. That, and it's important enough to repeat, go and make disciples. Can, can you say that with me? Go and make disciples. This is part of Jesus' last words with the disciples. This is, this is significant. It is central. It's important. As a matter of fact, in many ways, this maybe should be our benediction. Every service, maybe at the close of every service, we should pray. And, and I should stand up and say, okay, go and make disciples. Church is not about just what's happened here, but it's what's happening outside those, these walls. Are, are you going? Are you making disciples? Or are you following the, the command of Jesus, what we call the Great Commission? Going and making disciples. Now, I think questions are important uh, to to kind of do self-evaluation that every once in a while I think it's important to ask yourself some hard questions and, and questions help uh, see how we're, we're thinking. And, and before we go any further in the sermon, there's a couple of questions I, I want us to reflect on. And, and the first is this. Is a church a place where people gather or a people who are sent? But when, when you think of church, do you think of a place or, or do you think a group of a group of people who are sent on the mission field? See, I, I'm not against buildings. I am glad we're not meeting under a tree this morning. Amen? <laughs> right? It's cold out there. Thank you for buildings. Thank you that Harold Green turns the heat on every once in a while for us and makes it warm in here. Uh, thank you, God, for, for the blessing of a place. I, I'm for a building that's significant. There is a significance even when the church gathers. I mean, the church is supposed to gather and scatter. I mean, the, the Bible says, don't forsake meeting together. So there's an importance to gathering. But if we are only defined by a building or our gatherings, then I think something's missing. 
See, see, I think God is calling us to be a people on the go, a people in action. He, he uses, Jesus uses two great images to sh- describe his followers. He, he talks about light and salt. Now, now, light, Jesus says, you don't hide a candle under a basket. As a matter of fact, I think we sang a little song about that when we were kids, right? You don't hide a candle under a basket, but, but you let it shine. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're to be salt, and, 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 and we're not just to be a gigantic salt shaker, but we're to be scattered. And so if we're not scattered, if, if the church is defined only by place or building, if, if we are only the church when we are here, then I believe that we're missing something scripturally. I don't believe we are living consistent with the, with the word, with, with the instruction of Jesus, if we are only the church when we're here. There's a great quote that I've used often, and it's this. The mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. So so in this church, if if we want to be a great church, it will not be about how many people we get in our seats, but what we do when we leave these seats and whether we are engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. Do you believe that this morning? That that somehow it's not about the greatness of our gathering, it's the greatness of our scattering that's going to matter. Let me give you another question this morning. And and i got to tell you, this is a question by a a, a former missionary, Malamo. I'm not familiar with him, um, but i got to tell you, it was a convicting question when I read it. He said, what are we here for? To have a good time with Christians or to save sinners? I read that quote, and we read it in our board meeting Thursday night, and I got to tell you, it sets me back a little bit because I gotta, a lot of what we do in the church is, is focused, centered around what can we do together and, and how can we be together and how can we encourage one another. And, and there's nothing wrong with those things, okay? Don't, don't mishear your pastor to be saying, hey, we should never do a fellowship. We should never do anything that, that is encouraging to one another. There's a lot of one another's in the Bible too. But if our sole focus, if your sole focus is how can I have good times with other Christians, then somehow we're, we're missing what Jesus modeled, what, G, what God expects in our life to go and bring this good news to everyone, particularly people who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. I, see, I think we have this assumption, and this is always dangerous, but I'm going away from my notes for a second, but, but, but I think this is true. Terry, if I start to get in trouble, make a signal and make me go back over there, Okay. I think we have this assumption that, that everyone has heard the gospel and have made a choice to reject the gospel. That, that everyone thinks uh, that, that church is someplace that they can freely go. That, that everybody is aware that there's an open invitation to this church. You know, the truth of the matter is, you have neighbors that have never had the gospel clearly explained to them. You have neighbors that that do not understand that there is an open invitation 
expectation to this church or any other church in this community. You have neighbors and co-employees. You have people you work with and kids you go to school with that if you would just ask them to come to church, just ask them to come to church with you, they would. See, see, we live with this assumption that, that everybody's made this rational choice either to follow God or not to follow God. And, and, and we believe that everyone's had the same input in their life that we've had. We, we believe everyone's had Christian parents that have explained to them what Jesus has done on the cross. And the reality is, in our world, that is simply not true. As a matter of fact, if you lived in a home where the gospel was clearly lived and clearly explained, you probably are in the minority in your neighborhood. We've been talking about our mission, and, and our mission is loving as we go. And, and we, we talked about our vision, who we want to be, and we're ordinary people following Jesus. And, and our mission, that's loving as we go. So we're ordinary people following Jesus, loving as we go. And I, I like that phrase because I, I think every, every time we leave here, you know, I, I think it should be on the wall or on a plaque or something. Hey, we're leaving here and we're just going to be loving as we go. You know, it's consistent with what Jesus said in the Great Commission. The Great Commission literally says, in your going. Make disciples. And so mission is, is not a program. It's, it's not something we do occasionally. It's, it's not something that you just do on Wednesday night or Sunday night. or It's, it's not handing out just a, a tract. It's, a mission's not just something you give money to or pray about. But all of life is mission. Jesus modeled this example where his entire life was a mission from and for God. And as Jesus is our perfect example, then, then we're called to live this life of mission as well. Modeling Jesus, the perfect example. In Philippians, it says, Jesus, Jesus let go of everything. <laughs> he left the comfort of heaven, and, and, he, and, and, he, and because he was God, <laughs> I like that translation better, he took on the form of a human. And he went and died on a cross. That's modeling mission. See, Jesus was willing to go. Jesus was willing to serve. Jesus was willing to love and to give. Jesus is our model, and he's calling us to live in the same way. And, and last week we talked about the mission, and, and the mission is to make disciples. The mission is discipleship, and this week we're going to talk about the method. Very simply stated, Love is the method of the mission. Love is central to all we do. Love is central to this process of discipleship. Love is the reason that Jesus came. Love is a definition of the way Jesus lived. God is... Thank you. I thought I was going to have to do a prepper course or something. You guys left me hanging. God is love. Not love is God. God is love. God perfectly demonstrates and shows love. And Jesus, through his obedience to his heavenly father, showed us what real love was. It's a scripture that, that probably is the first scripture you learned 
as you were growing up. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I like this scripture because love is expressed through the life of Jesus, not because of the emotional decision that Jesus made, but love is expressed through Jesus, through his obedience to his heavenly father. In other words, as Jesus was obedient to his heavenly father, willing to go, he was expressing the love of God. See, I think we kind of get confused a little bit about this. We, 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 we have trouble understanding how, how do we love like God. And the truth of the matter is, folks, we will never in this lifetime, in ourself, love like our Heavenly Father. Amen? I mean, honestly, folks, I have three boys. I wouldn't give any of my boys for anyone else. You're, oh, I'm so disappointed in you, Pastor. And neither would you. But the Bible tells us God willingly gave his one and only son for you. Put your name in there. If you were the only one, God gave his son. He gave Jesus for you. I cannot love like that. See, the character and the will of our heavenly father is expressed through this extravagant love that Jesus demonstrates through his obedience to his heavenly father. See, Jesus didn't want to die on the cross because he loved you so much. Jesus died on the cross because he was obedient to his heavenly father. Not my will, but your will. And so we try to work up this emotional love for other people, and we try to love like we, we love a, a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife or a child, and, and we, we begin to think that this love's got to be this emotional welling up inside me, and if it doesn't, we don't. But what if love was based on obedience? See, I, I put it this way. When we are obedient to God, we love. And when we love, we are living in obedience to God. <laughs> See, I think there's something to this ideal that as we follow the will of God, it's not our love that's being revealed, but it's the love of the Heavenly Father. And so as we share the good news, as we give, it may not be some emotional thing, but it may just be a decision that says, God's word says, so I will because I'm going to show God's love. Or, or God has revealed, or God has led me, or God has given me this opportunity. And it's not like I'm, woohoo, I get a sacrifice or I get a give, but I love my heavenly father and I want his love to flow through me in obedience. Now Jesus talks about the importance, the primacy of love. We, we, we opened with the great commission and, and then there's this great commandment, and you find it in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Uh, Jesus is answering a question from, from a Pharisee on, on, on what they need to do to, to fulfill the commands. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something profound. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. 
In other words, everything's just centered around this idea of loving God with every fiber of your being and loving other people with every fiber of your being. If you love God with everything you've got and you love your neighbor like yourself, you're going to fulfill the law. In Luke, the, the great commandment is presented slightly in a, in a different way. And in Luke, Jesus is, is questioned by an expert in the law what, what he needs to do to follow the law or how, how does he keep the law or what's the most important commandment. And Jesus asks him, what do you think? And, and he responds almost verbatim to, to the commandment Jesus gives in Matthew 22. And, and Jesus says, that's right. That's the right answer. And, and then the, the scribe, the, the lawyer, follows with a question. Well, who is my neighbor? And we have one of the great parables in the New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we, we've heard the story. You've heard this story many times, I'm sure. But you know, Jesus gives this answer to describe who the neighbor is. But in so doing, he also describes the nature of love. And, and you know the story. There's a, a guy, and he's going from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. So, so we can assume from, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho that this is some good, kosher Jewish boy. Um, and, and he's on his way to Jericho, seemingly by himself. And it says he falls among thieves, and they beat him senseless and take his money and leave him bleeding, bloodied on the road. And along comes a priest. <laughs> and, and, and see, I, I like the parables of Jesus because in them there's a little bit of humor that, that I think sometimes we miss. See, I see all these common people around Jesus, and he's starting to smack down, you know, these spiritually elite people. And it's a little bit uncomfortable for the spiritually elite people. But for the common people, I can, can, can you sense the little giggle? <laughs> like if he just said, and along came a preacher, see, you'd all laugh. Yeah, look at that preacher walking on the other side of the road. And that's why he said, along comes the preacher, along comes the priest, and they walk on the other side of the road. They don't stop to help. Why? Who knows? A lot of reasons, probably. And then here comes a Levite. The Levite's like the church board, okay? So, so the church board comes along, and, and they walk on the other side of the road. And then there comes the Samaritan. Well, Samaritans were kind of an interesting people. See, in Israel's history, Israel was once a united country. And, and there were 12 tribes. There were uh, the 12 sons of um, Israel, of uh, Jacob. And, and so these 12 sons comprised 12 tribes. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided in half. There was the 10 upper tribes, and then the two lower, which was Judah. There was Israel, and there was Judah. And, and eventually, because of their sin, God sent Israel, the ten tribes uh, of the upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, into exile, and they disappeared from the face of the earth. You ever hear the phrase, that the, the ten lost tribes? Well, this is the ten lost tribes. They're, they disappeared. But people continued to live in Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom. And, and what the, the exiling country did was they transplanted a lot of people into Israel and so Samaria became all these half-breeds. Now eventually the southern kingdom was taken to exile too but they came back culturally intact somehow. Somehow they came back from Babylon and they were still kosher. 
But the northern kingdom, Samaria, was this mishmash of people, these half-breeds. And not only were they half-breeds, they, they were an irritation to the southern kingdom because whenever they wanted, when, when things were going right with the southern kingdom, they wanted to be right there alongside them. But when things were going bad, they were, hey, they we're separate. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of worshipped like the people in the southern kingdom, but not quite. You know, they had their own customs, their own way. And so the people in the southern kingdom, in Judah, the good kosher Jewish people, saw these people as half-breeds, as wannabes. As, you know, the, the law said you can't even associate with them because they, they're just not like us. You're unclean if you do. So along comes this Samaritan, and he stops. You know, the priest didn't stop, the Levite didn't stop, the preacher of the church board didn't stop, but here comes this sinner, this person that you don't associate with, and they stopped. And they wrapped the wounds, and they put him on the donkey, and they took him to an inn, and they paid all that needed to be paid for him to have a place in this inn. And, and not only that, he said, oh, and by the way, I'll be back by, and if you need more money, you spend what you need on him, and I'll pay you back. Jesus says, who was the neighbor? <laughs> and of course, the, the, the lawyer said, well, of course, the, the Samaritan was the neighbor. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And, and, and I think of this little parable, that there, there's things that we can learn about love. First thing is this, real love extends beyond our natural emotional attachments. It's easy to love your kids. It's easy to love people who are just like you. It's easy to love people even in this church because we, we should love each other, right? Right? Boy, you guys may be nervous for a second. Eh. But Jesus is saying this love has to exist, extend beyond natural emotional attachments. I'm going to suggest something very radical in here this morning. You guys ready? Get your seatbelts on. If you're a Christian and you're a Republican, you love Democrats. If you're a Christian and you're a Democrat, you love Republicans. <gasps> Boy, that was, that's quiet in here. That's what I like about churches that don't have gravel parking lots. You can't stone me after, okay? But it's true, folks. Our love extends beyond political orientation. It extends beyond family background. It extends beyond race and gender. It extends beyond all of those things. And those people that maybe it's not as natural for you to be attached to because the love of Christ compels us and the love of God compels us, we love them anyhow. And we're willing to pay a price. The second thing I want you to see is this, real love meets real needs. These are real needs that the Samaritans meeting. You know, he just didn't, okay, let me pray with you right here, and then I'm going to be on my way. Nothing wrong with prayer, but folks, the people of God meet real needs. It's very difficult to hear the gospel message if you're starving to death. It's very difficult to understand the love of God when you don't have a coat and you're freezing to death. 
And so the people of God, particularly people of our tradition, have always been moved to meet physical needs. Do you understand that that's what Wesleyanism is all about? John Wesley believed that you met physical needs. That's why one of our sister denominations is the Salvation Army. Because somehow we think in meeting physical needs that we can somehow make the, the, the spiritual needs, meet the spiritual needs, and there can be a reality that the spiritual needs can be met. And think about it. Have you ever had everything go wrong physically? <laughs> I can remember a time when, when things were really going bad for me. It wasn't, you know, life didn't seem to be going my way, and and. and like in the middle of the night, at the end of it, and in the middle of the night, my car broke down, and it was like 15 degrees and ice, and I'm standing on the side of the road, and it was before cell phones. <laughs> it was like the 18th century or something. I don't even remember when it was. You know, the truth of the matter was, I wasn't just physically cold and physically kind of beat up. Even in my spirit, it was very difficult to feel like there was much hope. But the strange thing was that when I started having physical needs, then the spiritual hope was easier to believe. See, we're not disembodied spirits. We're, we're encased, we're entombed, we're intertwined in this physical body. And, and Jesus ministered to physical bodies. He healed, he fed, he, he, he loved physical people. There's people you are going to encounter this week. And the truth of it is this, that in meeting a physical need, they may be, begin to believe that God can meet the spiritual needs of their life. Now, we, we believe that, there, that the deepest need anyone has is a spiritual need, right? Right, we agree with that? Sometimes to have the privilege of meeting spiritual needs you have to be willing to make meet physical needs. And in this parable, I, I love it that Jesus, this is what the Samaritan does. He, he meets the real needs of this guy's life. Real love looks past circumstances. We talked, what, what were the excuses? You know, I, I think there was a lot of excuses why they didn't stop. Maybe the Levite and the priest had obligations in the temple. And they were important obligations, and maybe they thought, well, somebody else will, or somebody else can take care of that, or, you know, th th this isn't my job, this isn't my gift. <laughs> I, I, did, I did a gift test this morning, and gift test said that I couldn't bind wounds. And uh, maybe they went by, by that for that reason. Or, or, or maybe they thought, well, you know, if I'm unclean, I'm not going to be able to serve. Or, or maybe they thought, ooh, you know, there could be other robbers there, this could be dangerous. <laughs> or maybe they just said, well... You know, it's kind of his own fault. Who walks down this street by themselves? See, there's going to be people that you encounter, and they walk down a street they shouldn't walk. And they bear part of the blame. But the model, the example we see in, in the Good Samaritan is there's no judgment, there's just meeting the need. And so sometimes we've just got to get past our busyness, our excuses, even what we think is our best gift. We have to get past all those things. We have to get past the other person's culpability in their circumstances. Because let's face it, when we're in a bind, when I'm in a bind, 
When there's something going wrong in my life, most of the time, I had a part to play. And I think the example the Samaritan gives us is someone that's willing to pay a price, even though this man probably shouldn't have been on that road by himself. The fourth thing I want us to see is this. Real love requires that we give of ourselves. See, love's not about a financial, just a financial token gift. Love's, love's just not about a part of our time, but, but love's about getting, giving of ourselves. And, and that's what we see in the, the Good Samaritan. We, we see him just giving of himself. Last year I read an article by a Peter Kraft on agape love, probably the best article on agape love I've ever read. And he, he talks about this intrinsic paradox of agape. So, somehow an agape Agape love is this great love of God, this highest manner of love. Somehow in this agape love, you've got to give yourself away. He says, not just your time or work or possessions or even your body. You put yourself in your hands and you hand it over to another. He says, and when you do this unthinkable thing, another unthinkable thing happens. You find yourself losing yourself. goes on and says... You know, and, and we believe this, right? Nothing's really ours. If you believe that, say amen. You know, it all belongs to God. Everything that you have is a gift from the Father above. Your, your home, your house, your car, your family. You know, the, the, this church is not our church. It's God's church. You know, all the things that you have in your life, your bank account, your 401k, your IRA, anything that you think belongs to you really is just a gift. It's on loan from your Heavenly Father. We're simply stewards. And, and he says when you, when you come face to face to God, you find that nothing is ours and our very existence. The fact that you're take do this with me. Take a breath. Not everybody did it. Somebody held, some of you people even held your breath to be stubborn. Let's take a breath together. One, two, three. That was a gift from God. Every breath you take is a gift from God. And he says, when you begin to understand that everything is a gift from God, and this is in your notes, he writes, if I am nothing, nothing that is mine is anything. (laughs) Nothing is mine by nature. But one thing is mine by my free choice, the self I give away in love. That is the thing even God cannot do for me. It's my choice. Everything I say is mine is not, but everything I say is yours is mine. C.S. Lewis asked which of his many library books he thought he would have in heaven. He replied, only the ones I gave away on earth and never got back. The same is true of the very self. It's like ball in a game of catch. Throw it and it will come back to you. Hold on to it and that ends the game. <laughs> I tell you, I love that little, little, little quote from Peter Kraft. Nothing's yours. The only things that become yours are the things that you give. <laughs> and so God is inviting you to join, you, join him, to, to join his son on this mission of giving of yourself for others. You know, maybe you're, maybe in your family. It may, it may be in, in the community today. It may, it may be in the restaurant today that you have to give a little bit of yourself. Maybe next week at work. Maybe at school. But just as Jesus went and gave, God is calling us to go and give. Stand with me, if you will. I have three questions I'm going to read, and and then we're going to pray and be dismissed. 
Who can I extend love to this week? Who in your life has God placed there that this week he has given you the opportunity to extend his love? Are there resources in my life that God is calling me to share with others? And finally, can I find a place of intentional service this week outside my comfort zone? See, there's something significant when we intentionally give of ourselves. To be honest, what I've talked about today probably won't naturally happen unless we pray it in, unless we will it in, unless we're willing to listen to God whatever circumstance we find ourselves in this week. I, I would, and I can't bet, okay? I'll guarantee you, today God will give you an opportunity where you can choose to show his love by giving of yourselves. And if you're just willing to be obedient to him, God's light, God's love can shine. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love in our life. You love us, and you loved us before we loved you. We didn't find you, God. You found us. And, and that, Lord, you give us this choice in our life. Well, we, we can follow or we can refuse. And Lord, and part of this choice is this ideal of love, of giving of ourselves, of being obedient to our Heavenly Father, and so being obedient, showing His love. So I pray right now, Lord, that as you give us opportunity, you will give us awareness. As you give us awareness, Lord, you will give us willingness. And Lord, as we are willing and obedient, may you receive the glory. Lord, I, I believe, I believe you want to do significant things through this church. And not the church as a building, but the church as people. So Lord, I pray as your will is expressed to us, as we understand your will, may your will be done in our midst. Bless each person, Lord, who's this morning. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with them, that you'll protect them, and keep them, Lord, this coming week. Lord, I pray your blessing upon them. I pray that they will sense your presence, your love, and your guidance. And Lord, all that they do, may they bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.